We're continuing Hebrews. Our passage today is chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen, church. We'll go ahead and have a seat, everybody. And let's turn to that awesome passage, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. We're continuing our series this morning through the book of Hebrews, Christ Supreme in All Things, and we come today to this passage that talks of angels, Christ and angels, both. And there is in this passage, and maybe you got a sense of it as Adam was reading, there's, what the author is doing is giving us a massive correction to something that the audience believes. So this is a, a massive corrective for false understanding. But as it relates to angels, it's different than what the author might do in our day because we need a corrective as it relates to angels, but it's different than the first century world. I'll just give you an example of this. When I look out on the Christian world today, you know, people make the mistake of thinking that angels, not that angels are greater than Jesus, like what we see in the first century world. People make the mistake of thinking that angels are these cute, little, chubby, cherubic baby monsters. (laughs) And I think this dates back to the Renaissance. Here's an example of this. This is Raphael's Sistine Madonna from the 16th century. And I've tried to piece this together, like, how did, where did we get there? And I think what happened is there was this synchronizing in the Renaissance world of the biblical conception of angels with the Roman god of love, Cupid, right? This, this fat little baby monster. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you go to a local bookstore or you look at a Hallmark card and you you see these images like this of angels. And, you know, people buy figurines like this and stick them in their pocket or put them on the coffee table. And, and you know, and that's weird enough, but the, the story of angels gets even weirder. Because we, in our modern day world, we have these movies about angels falling in love with human beings. That's weird. When I was in high school, there was this movie that came out called Angels in the Outfield, where the angels were actually 
you know, helping the California Angels win baseball games. And it made you wonder, like, don't angels have more important things to do than baseball? <laughs> that movie never really talks about it. And here's what's ironic about this. I'll give you two, two ways in which this is really ironic as we look to the scriptures. First of all, because when the angels show up in the Bible, typically nobody says when they see an angel, oh, how cute. They actually might soil themselves when they see an angel. Because angels are terrifying. And sometimes when angels show up in the Old Testament, they kill folks. And, and even when they don't kill folks, when an angel shows up in the Old Testament, oftentimes it'll change the whole trajectory of that person's life. So you may not die, but your life won't be the same after you see an angel. So that's ironic as we think about how our modern day conception of angels would be different than the first century world and different than the way the Bible presents it. But what's, what's also ironic is as we read the book of Hebrews, you know, the original, the original recipients of this book, they had a wrong view of angels too, but it was different than our view of angels. They didn't think too little of angels. They thought too much of angels, too highly. Or you might say it this way, they thought too little of Christ, reducing him to a place where he is equal with the angels. And so, I mean, they had the right view of thinking of angels as these fearsome, awe-inspiring creatures. They had a healthy reverence for them, but in some cases, they may have even venerated angels. And this is the bigger problem. They not just thought too much of angels, but thought too little of the sun. And that's what the author of Hebrews gets really fired up about here in this first chapter. And what he's going to do is he's going he's to dive deep into the Old Testament, and he's going to extract these rich passages in the Old Testament that speak of the Son of God, Messiah, and he's going to marshal incontrovertible proof that the angels are inferior to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's what he does here. He marshals incontrovertible proof from the Old Testament that Christ is awesome, way more awesome than the angels that this church, the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, had a misconception of. And, and I'll just tell you, this passage, Tommy Nelson calls this passage of Scripture a blow-your-hair-back passage. This is a sit-back-and-just-hear-how-awesome-Jesus-is in these verses. Y'all ready for this? So let me just outline this for you in, the, in this way. Here are five ways that the sun is superior to the angels. You can take your notes and write these down. Here's the first way. The sun is begotten of the Father, the author writes. The sun, greater than the angels, is begotten of the Father. Before I get into that begotten statement, let's, let's talk about the sun because this is important. And let's pick up where we left off last week in verse 4, because the author of Hebrews writes in verse 4, having become, this is a reference to the Son, him having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, that is an obvious reference to the Son, and the name that he has inherited is none other than the Son of God. I told you last week that angels are sometimes referred to as sons of God, Sometimes we are referred to as Christians as the children of God, but we are never the Son of God. There is a chasm of difference between sons of God and the Son of God, between a child of God, which I am a child of God, I'll say that, 
But I would never say it would be blasphemous for me to say I am the son of God. There is only one, the son of God. And that is Jesus. And that's the point here. This name, this son of God language is a name of excellence and it's a name of superiority and it's reserved for Jesus. This was emphasized throughout Jesus' life and his ministry. At Jesus' birth, he's called the son of the most high, Luke 1, 32. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father says what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He reiterates that at Jesus' transfiguration. God says, this is my beloved son. And you can add to that, that language, this term, begotten. Only Jesus is the only begotten son. Meaning that he is of the same essence, he's of the same stuff as God the Father. Nowhere in the scriptures are the angels referred to as begotten or the only begotten son. Neither are we. That's a special designation given to God's son in both the Old and the New Testament. John 1 talks about this. John 3.16 talks about this. 1 John 4.9 talks about this. How Jesus is God's only begotten son and the messianic son of David is also described as God's only begotten in Psalm 2. And that's the passage that this author of Hebrews cites in verse 5. He says this in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Answer, none of the angels. Didn't say that to any of them. Or again, here's another Old Testament passage, I will be to him a father, and he shall, to be, he shall be to me a son. Let me just point out something really quickly, and, and this, I just, this is artistic in the way that this information is presented. And I, I want to show you how art and artistry can be combined with good theology, okay? So Raphael, that's good art, it's bad theology, all right? But this author has both good art and good theology, and here's how his artistry works. Look at verse 5. At verse 5 sounds like verse 13, and this is what's referred to as an inclusio. It's a literary feature that would be appealing to the original listeners as they see what's called an inclusio or a, or a literary sandwich. Because verse 5 says, For to which of these angels did God ever say? And then at the end of this passage, in verse 13, he says again, And to which of the angels has he ever said? Y'all see that? So that's, that's the literary sandwich. And everything in between that, between those two slices of bread is the argument that he's making theologically. So that's the artistry, and the theology is just as compelling. Because speaking of theology, he's going to use in this passage seven, seven Old Testament passages to argue his point that the Son is superior to the angels. So he goes to his Bible. He goes to the Old Testament Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, to argue the supremacy of the Son. So, starting in verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a reference to Psalm 2, and that great messianic psalm, the greatest, some say, in the Psalter. And Psalm 2, I preached on this a couple weeks back on a Wednesday night. Psalm 2 is what's called a royal psalm or an enthronement psalm, where the author, David, talks about the power and the authority that God has vested in the Davidic monarchy. And the you in that passage, you are my son, both in the Old Testament, Hebrews is referencing that here, the you in that passage is Yahweh. Yahweh has a son and it's not an angel. It's not even Solomon David's son. 
Because Solomon, you know, everybody in the Old Testament was waiting for that son of David, the Messiah, the serpent crusher from Genesis 3. When's he coming? Is it Solomon? Maybe it's Solomon. No, it's not Solomon. Solomon was not, he he didn't cut it as a divine son. Because he was sin-stained like the rest of us. And that promise that was conceived a thousand years before Christ came into this world, that, that came later when a virgin conceived and bore a son in Bethlehem. That's the ultimate fulfillment of that passage in Psalm 2. And the author of Hebrews, what he does is he combines Psalm 2 and then also 2 Samuel 7.14, which is understandable because both of those Old Testament passages speak of the Davidic covenant. He combines them together and he says, this is, this is Jesus. This is referencing Jesus. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, here's 2 Samuel 7.14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7.14 is a a fascinating passage because in that chapter, David wants to build a temple for the Lord. You know, there's the tabernacle, but he wants to build a temple. And and God shows up and he talks to David and he he said, well, you want to build a temple for me? That's cute. I got a better plan. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build something out of your lineage, a son from your lineage that will rule the universe. And this is what he says, 2 Samuel seven fourteen. I will be to him a father, this the son of yours, David, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. That reference is a veiled reference to the iniquity that Jesus took upon himself as atonement for us. He became sin so that our sins might be removed and we might be saved. So so God says, I'm going to build a house for you, David. And and I can imagine David just sitting down right after he heard this, after Nathan delivered this to him, and he he sat down and he wrote Psalm 2. Or sometime after that, he wrote Psalm 2, thinking, I'm going to have a son, I'm going to have a son, I'm going to have a son, this son's going to be amazing. And, and maybe he even wrote it thinking of Solomon or, or some other, or maybe one of his grandsons down the line. But ultimately, that son didn't come in, in the days of David or the centuries after David. And I don't think David truly understood that prophecy and what was involved in that, even as he wrote Psalm 2. I don't, I don't think the Israelites, the Old Testament truly understood this. Yahweh has a son? How does that even make sense? Yahweh having a son. I don't think it makes sense till Jesus came into this world and said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now it's all tied together. That whoever believes in him should not perish. Y'all heard this before? This is the great fulfillment of all of this Old Testament precedent. God so loved the world that he gave his only, his begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't send an angel to redeem the world. God sent, in fact, God sent himself. Or to be more precise, God the Father sent God the Son to redeem the world. Y'all with me? Let's talk about this word begotten because this is important. The Greek word used here is the word ganao, which means to beget or to become the father of. And the word, our words, Genesis and genealogy come from this Greek word, ganao, 
And that word is quite prevalent in Matthew 1 when we have the begets. You know, Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob. That's that word genao used over and over again. And the LXX, the Septuagint of Psalm 2, uses that same word as well, genao, to describe this new kingly son. And, and y'all need to know this when the JWs come to your door. This, this is speaking metaphorically of the enthronement of God's son. This is not a literal concept here. When David enthroned Solomon, he would say some variation of this, you are my son today, I've begotten you. In other words, my kingdom now is being birthed out through you. And, and an ancient person would understand that. An ancient Israelite knew that this was royal language, indicating a transfer of power to a new king. It's not as if Solomon was born in that moment that David said that. Well, something similar is happening here with Messiah Jesus. This language of begottenness is used to describe a transfer of power to a new kingship. This word begotten is, it's not a reference to Christ's beginning as if he had a beginning during the incarnation or, or later somehow he was adopted as God's son. The sonship of Jesus Christ existed in eternity past and Jesus existed in eternity past. We've already covered that. He created the universe. And so this begottenness language isn't talking about Jesus coming into existence. It's, it's, it's an enthronement statement. It's a transfer of power as Jesus died, was resurrected, and then ascended into heaven, he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, enthroned on high. No angel is given that authority. No angel sits at the right hand of God the Father. They're, they're around the throne. They're not in the throne. So this, this title, God's begotten Son, is an honorific title that's exclusive to Jesus. Okay? Have I got that? I can write this down as number two in your notes. So the Son is the begotten of the Father. The Son is also, according to the author of Hebrews, worshipped as the firstborn. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Notice the again language here. It's as if the author said, and again, and again, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. Let me give you another scripture. Let me give you another scripture. You like the Old Testament? Okay, I'll go Old Testament on you. That's basically what he's doing here. And what he, what he wants to do, he wants to demythologize their view of angels and he wants to elevate their view of Jesus. So get angels right. It's not that angels are, are silly like in our day, the way we portray them. No, angels are powerful, but Jesus is way more powerful. That's what he's trying to do here with these arguments. And the reason, why did he need to do that? That's not entirely clear, but let me, let me give you some possibilities. Paul says in Colossians 2, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or worship of angels. So there must have been in Paul's day some kind of worship of angels that was taking place that he was combating. There's also evidence to suggest that in the Qumran community of Israel, that's the pre-Christ era, where the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were preserved, there, there was in that community an unhealthy obsession with angels. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you guys know the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? This, this incredible archaeological find where we have these scriptures that have been preserved and they're much older than some of the medieval Hebrew manuscripts that we have and they, they jive so beautifully. 
with the Hebrew scriptures that we already have. But, but you might not know this, as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they didn't just find Old Testament books, they also found some other writings that that community, the Qumran community, thought of as authoritative or thought of as scripture itself. And some of those scriptures had way too high, their scriptures, not our scriptures, what they thought as scriptures, had way too high a view of angels. And, and may have even involved the deification of the archangel Michael from the Old Testament. It's possible that that, that view of angels wasn't just part of that Qumran community, with the, the people that were called the Essenes, but that it was more widespread than that. And other Jews, even in the first century world, were imbibing that false view of angels. And, th and that would make sense for why the author of Hebrews had to say this. Now, here, that's a possibility. Here's another possibility for why the author of Hebrews needed to address this. It's possible that the, these Jewish Christians that he was writing to, they were being influenced by, by Jewish Judaizers even, who were trying to get these Christians to renounce it. Come back to Judaism. Come back to the Jewish scriptures. Come back to the Jewish world. And possibly... Part of their argument was something like this. You know, Jesus is great. I mean, even we like Jesus now, but, it, you know, and in fact, he might be the greatest of the angels. Can you just say that? Can you, can you just say he's, you know, that, that whole son of God thing and that whole deifying, that's just, we can't handle that. So just bring him down a little bit. Bring him down a peg to the greatest angel. Our Ken Hughes, he writes this, and you can see in that world why this might have been compelling. He says, if they, you know, these Jewish Christians would simply agree that Jesus was an angel, perhaps even the greatest of angels, but not God, they would be accepted into the synagogue and escape the awful pressure they were under. Such a prospect was tantalizing because it did not require an outright denial of Christ. We still like Christ but only a different affirmation of him and his greatness as an angel. And the prospect was also face-saving because it did not deny that they had had a real experience with an exalted being. So, so maybe that was going on, and he had to address this. Whatever the case, this author of Hebrews is very shrewd and discerning, and he takes their own ammunition, the Old Testament, and he loads his gun and he blows them away with their scriptures, with the Old, Old Testament. It's as if he says, these Old Testament scriptures, that's what you want to go back to? These Old Testament scriptures, these ones right here, well, let me use these scriptures to tell you how awesome Jesus Christ is. That's what he does. Incredibly shrewd. Now, again, here's the case in point of his argument. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. In that passage, the angels of God worship the Son. Do you want to use the Old Testament? The Old Testament describes angels worshiping the Son. You think angels are pretty cool? Well, the angels worship the Son. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let me explain this, this word firstborn because this is important too. That's not a reference to, you know, like my brother's the firstborn. You know, he's the oldest, but he was born. This, again, is a metaphor describing the inheritor. Remember I told you last week that Jesus is the inheritor. He gets all of God's stuff, right? 
The firstborn in the ancient world, and the ancients would understand this, this is, this is a reference to the estate, the father's estate. He's going to inherit the estate. And also, the firstborn was typically the, the one anointed as the king. And according to this author, the angels worshiped the son, Jesus, the inheritor of all that belongs to Jesus the Father. He's worthy of worship, not the angels. He's worthy of worship, not angels. And in fact, when you look at the Bible, I mean, what happens when people try to worship angels? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's appalling to the angels. Remember John, he has these encounters with angels. And I admit, angels are impressive beings. They intimidate folks. And there are these moments in the book of Revelation where John bows down to the angel. And the angel immediately is like, you must not do that. I, I'm, I'm a fellow servant with you. I'm a fellow created being. Worship God alone. Y'all remember that from the Bible? And in fact, there's this moment in the Old Testament, which is amazing, where where Joshua, he's actually encountering what's called the commander of the Lord's army. And he bows down to this commander and the commander doesn't say, stand up or don't worship me. He receives worship, which makes me think that that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ Jesus, what theologians would refer to as a Christophany in the Old Testament. Why else would, would the commander of the Lord's army receive worship in that moment? So here's the application for you. Everybody listening? We don't worship anything but God alone. We don't worship men. We don't bow before popes and kiss their ring. We don't, we don't worship human beings. We don't worship movie stars. We don't worship athletes. We don't worship politicians. We don't even worship angelic creatures who are way more impressive than we are when they want to be, when they show up in this world. And when they show up in this world, they say, we worship God. Come worship God with us. Do like us. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. Here's another way that the Son is greater than the angels. The Son is anointed as the King. In verse 7, here's the contrast. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. It's a reference to Psalm 104, verse 4. And this word winds could be translated spirit. So maybe some of your Bible translations say spirits. That's because the Greek word pneuma can be either wind or spirit, depending on context. I think winds is right here because the idea here is that the angels are out there doing God's bidding. They're out there ministering on his behalf. They are his messengers. They are created beings that take orders from God. And they often appear in, in the midst of a flame of fire. In fact, the word seraphim, you remember the seraphim from Isaiah 6, these, these majestic creatures around the throne, holy, holy, holy. The word seraphim is derived from a Hebrew word seraph, which means burning. So, as you envision those creatures around Isaiah in Isaiah 6, you know, just think of them in fuego. They're on fire. There's some kind of, of fiery essence to their being. And by the way, that word angel, I told you this last week, you know, angelos in Greek or malak in Hebrew, those words just mean messenger. 
It can mean messenger. It can mean divine, capital A, if you want to say that angel, or it can be just a messenger. So angels really are, they're, they're messengers sent by God. They're not redeemers. They are errand boys of the God of the universe. Can I say it that way? To do his bidding. Very scary, Aaron boys, but still Aaron boys. Speaking of scary, sometimes when God sends angels, he sends them with the word of execution. Remember the, the angel of death, the destroyer, the 10th plague in the book of Exodus? Remember the angel of the Lord who struck down 185,000 Assyrians in one night in 2 Kings? Remember the angel who almost struck down Balaam and his donkey? That talking donkey saved Balaam's life. And then the angel was like, I was going to let the donkey live and I was going to kill you. You should thank the donkey that you're still alive. So angels, let's be right about who angels are. Angels are terror-inducing creatures, but they are still God's errand boys to do his bidding. But, look at verse 8. Here's the contrast. So that's angels. But, of the Son. All right, now we're talking about something different. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, beyond even those Old Testament kings, the possible sons of David, messiahs. Jesus surpasses them. The word for anointed here, this is why I keyed on this word for that third point. It's this Greek word, creo. What's that sound like? Christos, Christ. And those, those words are um, corollaries. They're cognates. The, the Christos is the anointed one. And this is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach. And what our author does here is he uses Psalm 45, this passage that speaks of David and, and has this vague reference to the Mashiach with, with the verb Mashach, which means to anoint. Or do y'all want to try that word? Do I have that word up there? Just turn to your neighbor right now and say Mashach. Now wipe the spittle off their face. <laughs> the etymology of that word means to smear or anoint with oil. So we're talking about, and what happened in the Old Testament when somebody was about to be king? Samuel went to David and he smeared the oil on him, right? Because he was the anointed one. He's, he's the king. And so all of those little M messiahs of the Old Testament, David, his son, his son, his son, his son, ultimately was the pattern that led to the ultimate son of David, the capital M messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and here's a point that we need to get down. And I emphasize this when I preached on Psalm 2. Messiahship intimates kingship. Y'all with me? 
Because, I mean, we're Americans. We like to think about Jesus as our Messiah. He's our Savior. Yeah, he saved us. He saved us. You know, Jesus is also your king. No, 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 Pastor. We don't like kings. No, Messiah means king. You can't have a Messiah who's not a king. We struggle with that, right? Don't we, as Americans? Because we, we took King George's tea and we threw it in the ocean. <laughs> we don't like kings, Pastor Tony. You're going to like this king. And Messiahship... Look, you can't separate those things. Like, I like Jesus born in a manger. I like Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. I'm going to wear a cross around my neck. But, you know, the whole Jesus is king kind of thing, I, you know, I like being my own king. It doesn't work that way. Jesus, the whole idea here of Jesus as Messiah, as the anointed one, is that he's, he's the king. And he rules. And you submit your life to him as one of his subjects. And if you're not okay with that, then you don't know who Jesus really is. Because the way this is described in Hebrews 1 is that Jesus created the universe, the galaxies, everything that's in our world. Why wouldn't you submit to him? I didn't create that stuff. And I think too, even as Americans, we long for a king, a good king, don't we? We, we, we read stories about good kings. We want that. Someday we'll get it in Jesus Christ as he returns and rules with a rod of iron, with, with perfect justice and humility. I heard a story this last week about the Scandinavian king, a king named Canute from the 11th century. A good king. We got any Scandinavians in the room? There's like one. Okay. This is, your, this is your old king. And he was a Christian in the 11th century. And he, he was a good king, and he was a righteous king. And he, he was worried because his people started to depend upon him in a way that he thought was unhealthy and started to think of him even as, as God and go to him as if he's a god. So he decided he's going to make a point. So he, he had this great procession. He took all of his people down to the ocean. And he... he got enthroned before the ocean, and he, he told the ocean before all these people, hush, be quiet, wind, waves. And wouldn't you know, they, they didn't hush. They just kept on, you know, beating against the shore. And then he turned to all of these people, King Canute, and he says, there is but one who rules the wind and the waves, and it's not me. And he pointed them, to Jesus Christ. And King Canute, he awaited that king's return, just like we do. Go ahead and write this down as number four in your notes. Here's another way that the sun is greater than the angels. The sun is uncreated and immutable. Mutable means unchanging. Jesus is unchanging in his nature, and I want to I carefully nuance that statement, okay? So stay with me here, because this is really important. Have you ever heard this before? If you try to define the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. If you deny it, you'll lose your soul. I feel like something similar is taking place here in verses 10 through 12. I'm going to try to define the unchanging nature of the Son while also describing his incarnation, okay? And I'm going to try to do that without losing my mind, okay? Let's see how it goes. 
So verse 10 says this. Look at verse 10. And, everybody see that word? That's an important word. That's the only non-quotation word in verses 9 through 12. It's, it's as if, you know, this, this ammunition is like, oh, here's the Old Testament. Here's another Old Testament. And this from the Old Testament. And, and look how seamless it is from Psalm 45 and verse 9 to Psalm 102 and verses 10 through 12. And the author says, you, Yahweh, lay the foundations of the earth. He's talking about Yahweh from the Old Testament, but he's linking it to the sun. What's, what does that tell you? You, Lord, Yahweh's son, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, like I said, the you, Lord, there is a reference to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And in that psalm, the psalmist is praising Yahweh, comparing him to mankind. Yahweh is so much greater than mankind. And, and there really is no comparison. But the author of Hebrews takes that great statement about Yahweh, and he equates it with the Son. The Son is Yahweh too. So just to be clear, Yahweh has a Son, and the Son is Yahweh. Y'all lost your minds yet? Because Jesus said, and make sure you quote this to the JWs, before Abraham was, I am. You know why they picked up stones and tried to kill Jesus? Because they knew what Jesus was saying. He was equating himself with Yahweh. And he either is equated with Yahweh, or we should just put this Bible away and forget about this religion altogether. Everything hangs on that. Is Jesus indeed God or not? And what this author is saying is that there is Yahweh's son, Yahweh has a son, and Yahweh's son is Yahweh. How do, how do you make sense of that, Tony? How do you make sense of that? I make sense of it of this thing we call the Trinity. That God is one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Try to define it, you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it, you'll lose your soul. And speaking of Jesus as Yahweh, this passage goes on to say, You, Lord, Yahweh Jesus laid the foundations of the earth. We looked at this last week, didn't we? Do I need to describe how awesome our galaxy is again? Jesus made all that. And yet, verse 11 says that this massive universe with all of its planets, with all the stars, all the galaxies, they will all perish. It will wear out like a garment. That's sad. There's this famous bumper sticker. Maybe some of y'all have seen it. It goes like this. The earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. Y'all seen that before? I sure hope that's not true. Because the earth, just so you know, is going the way of the dodo bird. As scientists explain it, the earth, as it goes around the sun, it's, as the gravitational pull of the sun, as the sun shrinks, that gravitational pull is getting weaker. So we're just kind of being thrust into outer space a little bit at a time. And someday, according to scientists, our earth will burn up, as will the sun. And everything that ever happened here on this life will be gone forever. You will be forgotten. Nobody will ever remember you. This whole world will be dead. The end, nothing. How y'all feel about that? If that was true, then we should just go commiserate with one another at Rudy's right now. Why are we here? 
if that bumper sticker is right, the earth does not belong to us, we belong to the earth. But aren't you glad that's not the case? We don't belong to the earth, we belong to Jesus. Amen. And Jesus created this earth and the entire galaxy. And according to this passage, someday he will roll up this world like a scroll. He will roll it up and send it to goodwill like your wife does your jeans. <laughs> we're done with that, and we're on to something new. Look at verse 11 again. They, that's the heavens and the earth, will perish. Someday our world will perish, but you, the sun, remain. They, the heavens and the earth, will all wear out like a garment, like a go, like a robe, sorry. You, Yahweh the sun, will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, this is where we need to carefully nuance Jesus Christ in our understanding of Jesus, because he did change. He did he existed in eternity past as God, the Son, but he didn't exist in eternity past as a God-man. He came into our world. There was never a time when he was not God, but there was a time when he was not a man. He came into our world and he changed. But what this is saying here is that there is some immutability, some understanding of God's changelessness, even in that. Even as he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he never stopped being God. He was God all along the way. And in that sense, he remains the same and he never changes. Y'all with me? And even in Philippians 2, that passage that talks about Jesus' self-emptying or his kenosis, where he voluntarily set aside some aspect of his divine attributes, he never ceased being God, even through all of that. So the Son is uncreated and immutable. And the emphasis here is how that is distinguished from the angels. The angels are both created beings and mutable. They change. And the best example of that is the fallen angels. God created Satan. Satan is not Jesus's brother. Jesus created Satan. And Satan rebelled against God. And he chose, he convinced a third of the angels to rebel with him. So angels are mutable in that sense. They are created beings. The sun, on the other hand, Hebrew says, you are the same. Your years will have no end. You are unchanging. And in fact, this world, as vast and as awesome as it is, he'll just roll it up and throw it in the laundry basket someday. I want you all to think about that tonight. When you're putting on your jammies and going to bed. Just think, Jesus is going to do this someday with his world. When you're, when you're waiting on your kids to put on their jammies, which takes like hours. <laughs> Once they get them on, then you say, look, kids, you know, Jesus is going to take this world just like your clothes. He's going to wrap it all up, roll it up, and he's going to throw it in the laundry basket, and he's going to create a whole new world. That's, that's the Jesus that we love and serve. And then finally, here's the coup de grace for the angels are just like Jesus argument. Sometimes you got to take an old mangy dog outside, one who's got rabies, and put it down. And that's what this author does with this silly argument. He puts it down, and here's, here's the coup de grace. The son is seated at the right hand of the father. Remember what I said to you about that inclusio. So here's the, 
Here's that other piece of bread, the bottom of the sandwich. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Which angel did he say that to? Answer, nobody. No angel. Angels would never sit at the right hand of God the Father. Angels are around the throne, not on the throne. And the right hand, y'all know this, right? Like that's the place of authority. That's like your your right-hand man, your right-hand person. And the Son only has access to the right hand of God the Father. In fact, Peter clarifies this in 1 Peter 3, verse 22. So maybe there was an issue even to the audience that Peter was writing to. He says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven. Is at, he is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So even Peter was saying the angels submit to Jesus who's at the right hand of God the Father. And by the way, that passage that's quoted here in Hebrews is Psalm 110. And that psalm is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. It is, just like Psalm 2, it's an amazing piece of prophetic poetry that points forward to Messiah Jesus. And Jesus Jesus quoted that to the Pharisees, this psalm. He said this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1. And then Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is, how is he his son? That is a good question. That is what we call a real humdinger of a question. You remember what the Pharisees did? They're like, we don't know. They just walked away, and Jesus didn't even explain it to them. He didn't bother with it. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he knew they were hard-hearted. They wouldn't understand. Maybe Jesus didn't want to connect the dots for them or his disciples until after he had been raised from the dead. I I don't know. He just kind of left them to ponder this question. But let me ask you this question, Christian. How can the son of David, the Messiah, also be David's master? How can David's son be David's Lord? That's crazy. How many of you have sons that you serve as your Lord? It doesn't make sense unless you understand that this son of David ultimately is Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that messianic prophecy, who is also the son of God. So Jesus is King David's son, but he's also King David's king. That's what that means. And if the, if the Pharisees were paying attention, maybe they could have seen this from the Old Testament. And the point that the Hebrews author is making is that no angel comes anywhere close to this. Sitting at the right hand of God the Father, David calling an angel Lord, that's crazy, that's ludicrous. Because look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits, these angels sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are just ministering spirits. They're created beings. They're here to serve us even, whatever that means. I don't know if that means like everybody's got a guardian angel like some people think. I think that's kind of silly. But, but they do serve us in some way. And actually, I'm not so sure verse 14 isn't a veiled reference to the spiritual warfare going on all the time around us. If our eyes could only see what the angelic beings are doing right now as war is engaged and they're protecting us 
from the enemies of darkness. Someday, maybe we will see that in eternity on VHS. <laughs> Stick it in and let's watch it. There might also be a reference here to the last days when Jesus will command his angels to destroy his enemies forever. Notice how angels are so prominent in the book of Revelation. And they will prepare the way for us to inherit salvation. Verse 14. They're preparing the way for us to inherit salvation. So let, let me close with this. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Angels are amazing creatures. And if you th think this morning I'm here to disparage them in any way, I'm not. Angels are, are cool. They are fellow servants of God with us. They continually praise and worship God. We could learn a thing or two from them on that. They're innumerable. The book of Revelation speaks of angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. So there must be trillions of angels out there. They, in some instances, communicate God's messages to men. They minister to us in some way. They rescue people in the Bible, like Peter. They also kill folks. The Bible says that angels re rejoice at the conversion of sinners. Isn't that cool? They celebrate that. They watch the lives of believers with interest. There's even evidence that they carry believers away at death to a state of blessedness, Luke 16, verse 22. And we know that angels will also be the agents of God's judgment at his second coming. Angels will unleash, in some way, God's righteous wrath on our world. Angels are amazing creatures, and we need a, a better understanding of them. But comparing angels to Christ is like comparing an ant to the Milky Way. And worshiping angels is as silly as thinking the Sistine Chapel just came into existence on its own instead of being created by someone like Michelangelo. And I wonder sometimes, you know, with all of our misunderstanding of angels, I wonder what angels think of us. First Peter 1 says that angels long to look into the plan of salvation for humans. They long to look into these things. Well, I as a human, I long to look into what angels think of us and the way in which we render them with our, you know, chubby little trubic monster babies. I bet they look at that on our coffee tables and just shake their head. And I'm sure they shook their heads at the people in the first century who would dare elevate angels above Christ. I'm sure they were like, don't you dare do that. We're not even close. Because he is the son of God. He is the savior. He's the creator of the universe. He's the redeemer. Worship him, not us. Love him, not us. Follow him, not us. Obey him like we do. I'm sure they would tell us that. Obey him, follow him. Jesus, the son, is so much greater than us. And yet as Hebrews says, and this is, I can't wait to get to this. He became a little lower than the angels. In other words, the God of the universe took on human flesh and he died for us. That 
Angels long to look into this. So church, worship the Son. Follow the Son. Serve the Son. Obey the Son. Put your faith in the Son. Let's pray, could you? Just bow our heads before the Lord right now. Lord Jesus, we testify this morning that you are the creator of this universe. And Lord, there are people in this world that diminish you or think less of you than you are. God, may that not be true of us. You are the Son of God. You are Yahweh incarnate. You existed in eternity past. You will exist in eternity future. Our inheritance is dependent on you, Lord. Our hope is in you and you alone. And Jesus, we're here to say that our worship, our adoration as created beings, we're going to reserve for you. We're not going to worship angels. We're not going to worship human beings. We're not going to worship rock stars. We're not going to worship athletes. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to worship the God of the universe. So, Lord, receive our worship. Lord, and in the ways that we wrongfully elevate the things of this world or even ourselves above you. Forgive us that, Lord. Give us the right perspective on these things, I pray. And Lord, help us right now to, to follow through with that commitment. 